This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Is saintliness a pathway to interreligious dialogue? A forthcoming conference at the University of Notre Dame will give us a chance to find out. The conference is Ways of Perfection and Devout Lives, Saintliness Across Traditions. It'll convene March 29th to 31st, 2020. One of the organizers is our guest today. He is Professor Gabriel Saeed Reynolds, Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Reynolds focuses on Quranic studies and Muslim-Christian relations in Notre Dame's World Religions and World Church program. He joins me, Leonard DiLorenzo, to talk about the conference, the distinctiveness of theology, learning to disagree well, and much more on Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Gabriel Reynolds, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, Gabriel, you're planning a conference under the title of Ways of Perfection and Devout Lives, right. where you're hoping to foster interreligious dialogue around notions of saintliness, which I find really interesting. And right. saintliness, not only in Christianity, where we would normally think of it, perhaps, but in other faith traditions as well. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, the inspiration for this particular conference. What are you hoping it will do? Right. So the conference is administered and planned by the program in which I teach mm-hmm. in the Department of Theology at Notre Dame, which is called World Religions, World Church. And um, we have this sort of dual mission, you know, of um, theological reflection um, in an ecclesial way in conversation with the church, Mm -hmm. but also sort of robust academic scholarship on world religions and understanding them, their texts, their traditions, all of that. And we've had a number of conferences. The challenge with these conferences is we want to engage um, academics to think about interreligious dialogue in a way that engenders fruitful, positive conversation, advances understanding, um, but is also sort of serious academic stuff. You know? right, right. And the problem sometimes with religious dialogue is you deal with the contentious issues. Um, for, you know, my background is in Islamic studies, so it's easiest for me to draw examples from that context in particular. And, you know, a lot of dialogues I've been involved with have dealt with, like, Jesus in Islam and Christianity, mm. or the Islamic teaching on God vis-a-vis the Christian teaching on God as triune or the Trinity. And those are really thorny issues. So um, we, we met in 2018 in January was our last conference, and there we were speaking generally about interreligious relations. And there was one um, really lucid paper given there which said, you know, um, we, we could think of examples of saintly people in different traditions in ways in which you can sort of reach across divisions or boundaries of those traditions and find inspiration in these in these figures. And that that's basically where it started. So um, the, the vision for the conference is to do precisely that. You know, where can we find um, inspiration, holy figures in different traditions that can be that can help us cross those boundaries mm-hmm. and um, have fruitful conversations. I mean, it's actually wonderful to hear that there was a previous conference where there was at least one lucid paper. So, I mean, that's a successful conference, <laughs> right, right? right? And so successful, in fact, that it spawned another conference from there. So what kind of um, scholars or presentations are you anticipating at this at the upcoming conference? Right. So it's, it's an interreligious event. Mm-hmm. We have people from different traditions. We have Jews and Muslims and Christians and others who are coming to speak. And um, at the same time, um, there is sort of the way we've prepared the, the sort of thematic um, vision for the whole conference is that there's an attention to um, the Catholic tradition in a special way. Mm-hmm. So we do want this to sort of nourish the church's thinking, imagination. Um, 
our, our scholars come from around the world. We have a scholar from China, a scholar from um, from Italy, um, a scholar from Lebanon. Our um, two keynote speakers. One is um, the actually this is pretty cool. The um, the uncle of the current king of Jordan. Oh wow! His name is Prince Hassan. Um, uh, and he established a center for Muslim-Christian relations in Amman, Jordan. Mm. And he himself is a scholar. He's a Muslim scholar of Christianity. So he'll give um, a video address. He's not coming to camp- campus, unfortunately. Um, but he'll be giving a video address as one keynote speaker. And then the second keynote speaker will address, um, uh, well, is Helen Prejean, who um, you know your listeners may know from the film Dead Man Walking, who's right. a, an activist and um, a religious sister, and an activist um, in uh, on the question of capital punishment. And so we sort of brought her. You know, most of the speakers are coming to speak about saints and holiness, and we brought her as the saint. <laughs> <laughs> so she'll give one of the other keynote addresses. <laughs> Did she accept under those terms? Um, we we didn't actually put it that way. That. It'll be a surprise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now we will hear from a saint. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I was interested in what you were saying just a moment ago in terms of um, the World Religion World Church Program in the Department of Theology right. in Notre Dame. And this conference, um, like other conferences and other work coming from there, where you are attentive to theological reflection in an ecclesial way. So it's it's within a theology department at a Catholic university. And at the same time, you want to engage in robust dialogue with other religions right. as well to bring these together. I imagine, you know, maybe you know, anyone who thinks about this, you know, as we think about it a little bit deeply, we could see that these probably aren't adverse to each other. They're not a mutually right. exclusive. But right. maybe at a first pass, we might think, well, really to be to do robust inter, interreligious dialogue, like you have to compromise the ecclesial context. Um, how is that a false dichotomy? Right. So the, the, the problem um, the problem can begin, if it develops at all, when doing in religious dialogue is a notion that you have to reach agreement, right? Mm. So if you start with that, if that's your starting point, that, you know, we're going to work things out and come to an agreement, um, it, that can lead to pretty sloppy and messy theology. And I mean, that's the point that differentiates or distinguishes between ecumenical dialogue between Christians whose goal is unity, you know, as mm-hmm. Christ, you know, commanded us to be one. Um, so versus interreligious dialogue. And, you know, one way to think of interreligious dialogue is um, it's it's not coming to agreement. It's learning to disagree well. Hmm. And um, therefore, the in a sense, difference is part of the whole formula. And that, that's sort of a vision for our program. Yeah. Um, so and even me personally, when I understand when I when I study and seek to understand Islam, um, it's to do justice to that tradition um, but not to change my own personal, you know, spiritual and religious convictions. Um, and I think that will be manifested in the conference and really sort of marks everything we do in the program. Yeah, I wonder how much there's maybe this political paradigm that's like hovering in the background of the way in which we might often think of interreligious dialogue, precisely in what you said, that if you start from the position, the notion that we have to uh, reach an agreement, this is the way politics would work. You're either going to compromise and reach an agreement right. or – your side's just going to win. You just have to overpower and outmaneuver the right. other side. Right. Um, is that? I mean, I'm wondering if there's something like this political kind of vapor that's a, you know specter yeah, that's there, in, the, in the, the room. The, most there, of the time. there, there could be. And the the sloppy theology alluded to uh-huh. is sometimes so much a, of that. <laughs> <laughs> is it's sometimes it can be a product of goodwill, right? Mm. So um, very often you have Christians who have engaged in conversation with Muslims, 
again, returning to Islamic Christianity, who have proposed um, new ways of understanding the Trinity or um, Christology, so the mm. divine and human in Christ, um, in a way that they feel would be more acceptable to Muslims or have proposed that Muhammad should be accepted, that Christians should, should accept Muhammad as a prophet. Mm. And um, so they, they do that out of goodwill to tr- try to engender um, closer relationship with, with Muslims, but it uh, doesn't always lead to coherent Christian theology. That makes sense. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We are talking with Dr. Gabriel Sayed Reynolds, professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame, specifically in the World Religions World Church Program, where he specializes on Quranic and Muslim Christian relations. Quranic studies, I should say, and Muslim Christian relations. Let's talk a little bit about a department of theology here, if we can kind of zoom out from the conference and from some of the things we were talking about. Um, maybe some of us and maybe others of us haven't. Maybe some of us have and some of us haven't, I should say, thought about the distinction between, say, a department of theology and a department of religious studies or a department of religion. You are a Catholic scholar who studies Islam within right. a department of theology. The right. World Religions World Church Program is in a department of theology. Right. What difference does a department of theology make for the scholarly pursuits you and your colleagues are involved in? It makes a a tremendous difference, and it marks um, the very culture of the program, the spirit of the program. Um, And it's important to to help communicate what's unique and beautiful about about theology, um, in part because for many people there's overlap and confusion about what distinguishes the two. Um, I think a lot of my undergraduate students at Notre Dame is, and um, uh, are, are often assume there's there's no difference. They're, and sometimes they'll just, when speaking about their class, they'll be like, oh, yeah, my religion class. No, it's not your religion class. <laughs> it's it's theology your theology class. class. Yeah. So, um, and you know what? I Oftentimes the image I use for them, which is not a very sophisticated or eloquent one, is I say, you know, imagine a kid with an ant farm, which aren't really found too often or frequently these days. <laughs> but anyway, imagine that, right? Um, For religious studies, um, the scholar is the kid observing these religious people, the ants, right, doing funny things, carrying leaves, helping out the queen, doing whatever ants do, you know, but they're outside of the ant farm. They're observing these funny little creatures, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what a scholar of religious studies may do. Again, it's maybe not a very sympathetic um, image. Um, whereas, and then it gets, the analogy actually gets worse because um, <laughs> doing theology, you're in the ant farm, right? You're, you're part of the, the whole um, beautiful um, exploration and search for God and the understanding of God. So um, you're actually part of the action. Um, religion is the study of, religious studies is the study of religion. Theology is the study of God, mm. um, as you and your listeners know. So, um, it, and that also changes fundamentally the dynamic of interreligious conversations because you're somehow in a mutual quest now. You're not simply scholars sort of comparing systems, but you're both on your own paths looking for God. In your own work as someone who studies Islam and the holy book of Islam, um, how has your own, if I could ask this, how has your own quest for God as being in in that ant farm to follow your analogy? how has that been promoted right. or furthered or strengthened in your dialogue and conversations with especially Muslims? So the, the example, um, here comes another bad okay, um, example or analogy, but uh, the best I can do, I guess, the example I sometimes use for my own experience sort of observing Islam and studying Islam and seeking to understand Islam is when you're in the gym, you know, and you're on a treadmill mm-hmm. running along at speed X. 
and there's someone next to you. I go to X plus one, but I, <laughs> okay, I, I, okay. I understand. Yeah, yeah, right? So there's someone next to you just going a little bit faster, right? <laughs> and you're looking over and you're like, darn it, I can do that too. Uh-huh. And you speed up a little bit, you know, and um, you sort of push each other along. And <laughs> I, I think in a sense that is the, um, the most sort of felicitous or um, fruitful way of thinking about studying another tradition. Mm. Um, it's not about compromising my own um, faith, and I'm deeply in love with the Catholic faith, um, but it's f- f- finding beauty also in Islam, and in a special way, actually, we could speak about this more if it's interesting, but finding inspiration in the remarkable piety and devotion that Muslims have to their faith. And goodness, you know, if they um, pray five times a day, not all of them do, of course, but many of them actually do. And they have, they're able to keep this very rigorous fast. Um, and they try to submit their whole lives to God and following his law. Um, you know, I can do better myself. So mm. there's some of that that goes on. I would like to talk about that, if you don't mind, this, the piety that, that you've seen in Muslims and the is- Islamic religion. And like you say, it's not everybody, but it's, it really is there. Um, no question. It, no question. Right? Um, what have you seen in that? What is... What do you see, in, especially in terms of the relationship between these practices and these um, rituals, these habits, and the thriving of the Islamic faith itself? Yeah, I think I think it's it's closely related, namely the um, th- as you alluded to at the end, the thriving of um, of Muslims and Islam generally throughout the world. Um, Islam is is growing, and um, piety is growing among Muslims. Um, and uh, that begins on the individual level where individual Muslims um, uh, often become very um, devoted to the notion of submission to God. You know, Islam means submission, and their spirituality often is marked by this idea that 24 hours a day in everything I do, I want to be attentive to my relationship with God. And sometimes this is expressed through acts, through outward expressions, um, so, for example, it may be for Muslim women wearing a headscarf. Not all Muslim women do, but many do. For Muslim men, um, it could be growing a beard in an Islamically proper way, or it could be doing the ablutions, the special washing before prayer, and praying along with those ablutions. But in all these individual acts, time and again, Muslims reaffirm their, their devotion to God, their submission to God. Um, and so um, for, for Muslims, it's not just an external thing, but th- this leads to an interior disposition um, in, in which one's soul is um, in a state of, of closeness, proximity to God. A kind of prayer without ceasing. Sounds right. Like right. your entire life starts to become a, a, a devotion, a kind of sacrifice, right, through these habitual acts right. over and over again. Right. Mm. And there's... There's something of that in, in Catholic culture mm-hmm. as well. And so I think there are analogous ways in which we can, um, we can sort of observe our Muslim friend or neighbor and think um, there are certain – I can cultivate a similar disposition through my, the own disciplines of my tradition. How did you begin as a scholar of Islam? Well, the, the 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 short story is <laughs> the Reynolds origin story. If you will. Yeah. <laughs> the short the short story um, is from the summer of 1993, um, when I was an undergraduate student and I did a study abroad program just for the summer in Naman, Jordan, um, which I mentioned briefly around mm-hmm. Prince Hassan. Um, and um, as soon as we came out of the airport in Amman, our group of mostly American students, um, I heard the call to prayer on loudspeakers. Right, wow. this is another sign wow. of the sort of um, religious culture um, right. of Muslims. Um, you know, the call to prayer is no longer done by someone climbing to the top of a minaret and calling out as loud as possible. Um, it's done from someone in the mosque through a loudspeaker, and that's projected into the streets. 
And um, hearing that for the first time, not from one mosque, but from several mosques, you know, you hear from different directions. And it just occurred to me that, like, this is serious. Muslims, you know, <laughs> don't mess around with religion. Right. And, you know, there are some Muslims who may um, and, and not like this sort of outward showing and having to listen to the call of prayer through loudspeakers and things. But most Muslims find it beautiful. Mm. Like, they want to hear the call. They want to be reminded. Um, whereas imagine in the American context, you know, like broadcasting a sermon or a homily right. outside of a church with loudspeakers that yeah. probably wouldn't go down well. Right, right, right. Or even yeah. an Angelus bell, right? Like the old tradition of an Andrew's right. bell that rings for a town uh, these three times a day to call you to this brief prayer the at the Angelus at six, right. noon and six. Um, there are still places, certainly even in our hometown, that might have one of those uh, throughout the day, but it's not common. Right. And even if for most of us, if we heard it, we wouldn't know what it is. Right, right. So you're talking exactly. about in the cultural setting, everybody knows what it is and it's and, meaningful. And in addition to the call to prayer five times a day, there is also the sermon on Fridays oh. for the noon noon prayer, which is always broadcast That's through loudspeakers as well. Oh. Yeah, so if you want to hear it or not, you're going to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> but for, but for Muslims, these are reminders of, um, uh, of guiding you to repentance, mm. to renewal of your faith. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not all Muslims are super religious. I don't want to generalize. Right. Some might be annoyed by that that sort of thing. But in in my own story, encountering that Alman Jordan in 1993 yeah. in the summer made me think. Um, goodness, this is serious. I'd like to understand it. Um, and then I began to discover the ways that it's um, interconnected with Christianity, the sort of challenges it makes to Christian teaching, and I became all the more interested. You sought understanding. Exactly. You <laughs> You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We are talking with Dr. Gabriel Said Reynolds, professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame, specifically in the World Religions World Church Program. Something else that's come out of, I think, your program or work between you and some of your colleagues is a new podcast that you've launched called Minding Scripture. And in Minding Scripture, which I think is just a really cool project, and I've really enjoyed listening to the the episodes. I've learned a lot. Um, You're bringing together Christian interpretation of Scripture, the Christian Scriptures, Hebrew Scriptures, and Um, your colleague, Muslim colleagues who are reading their own scripture, but reading together each other's scriptures too and having conversation about it. Where, where did this idea come from and, and what is it like to bring this conversation onto the airwaves so others can be part of it? Right. So, um, yeah, this is very exciting venture for us and it is supposed to be a manifestation of the, the notion of disagreeing well mm. um, and um, also supposed to manifest this sort of um, integration between the academic vocation of a scholar and our own personal, um, everyone's a believer um, on the podcast, so our own personal spiritual lives. So we're supposed to bring those together. Um, But it it comes out of a movement known as scriptural reasoning, which um, was founded in part by um, someone named Peter Oakes, um, a scholar at the University of Virginia, who began to form these study circles where Jews, Christians, and Muslims would get together to read Bible and Quran, always on the same theme. So we take a theme like revelation, repentance, um, uh, um, mystical experience, enlightenment, illumination, and you look at um, excerpts from the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, New mm-hmm. Testament, and the Quran. And we thought, well, we could, um, we could do this um, uh, on a larger level um, with a small group of scholars bringing in guests sometimes, and, um, but the idea would be to um, attract an audience, a listening audience that would have Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and basically m- manifest um, how 
um, the life of the mind. So a rigorous study of scripture can go with the life of faith. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, we hope to break down both fundamentalist readings of scripture, um, which um, are not easily um, amenable to sort of reasoning, um, but also the, the critique of a secular humanist who would say um, scripture has no meaning, has no sense. It can't produce anything in the modern world that um, nourishes us. Um, and it certainly um, doesn't contain um, sort of truth which um, redounds to the existence of God or a path to salvation. So we're sort of fighting those two two battles, you know, on either side and trying to show there's, there's something in the middle that's real. So you take one of these themes and, uh, like you said, revelation um, or mysticism, and you read it across um, – the sacred text. Give us a sense of how, for people who aren't familiar with this, how the conversation then proceeds. Like if somebody's right, tuning in, what right. are they going to hear? So the first episode was on Adam. Mm-hmm. And um, we begin with Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. So we begin with the garden story. And mm-hmm. immediately we see their different interpretations from a Jewish perspective and a Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a simple thing to point out, but still pretty interesting, mm-hmm. is that um, Genesis itself has this, the story of the snake. Everyone knows about um, this, the, the, the wise and crafty snake. Um, in Christian tradition, in part because of something in the book of Revelation, that snake has been understood from a very early period as um, Satan. Um, but for for most Jews, it's not. Right. It's just a snake. You right. Know? And the story of, um, you know, there's the allusion to the offspring of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. For Christians, has this deep meaning as this proto-gospel that occurs in chapter 3 there of Genesis. But for Jews, obviously, that meaning is not there. And um, the notion that of even the fall, which um, is connected to a doctrine of original sin, for Jews, it's not there. So we sort of work through some of those things in that episode. And then um, then we read the, the Quranic account of the garden in which um, the snake is gone and only the, only the devil is there. Hmm. Um, the devil completely takes the place of the snake. So m- maybe developing further the Christian reading of the text. Um, and, you know, we, we connect some differences there. But just one other interesting thing to note about a contrast between Quran and Bible is um, the Quran actually has a story for the fall of the devil. Hmm. How did the devil become the devil? It actually the paradise tells, lost story is in exactly right. right Milton right. is in. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. right. or the Qurans in Milton. Right, the Qurans yeah. in Milton, one way or the other. Yeah. yeah. So you know, God commands the angels to bow down to Adam, uh-huh. and one refuses and um, is is cast out of the high, high mm-hmm. higher heaven, and and that's the devil. That's a devil story. Has that been influential on a Christian reflection on on the devil, as you've seen the, this this story? Right. Well, the story actually. Is, is a Christian story in uh-huh. origin. It's a pre-Quranic Christian story, although, of course, not canonical. It's not in the Bible. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it is developed, and it's probably— I don't want to go too much into the weeds here, but it's probably de- developed in reflection on passages like Philippians 2, uh-huh. which speak of all things above and below, bowing the knee at the name of Christ. And the and, one who would not bow the knee. Exactly, yeah. And then the, sort of the—, the the notion that um, Adam um, was a proto, before the fall, of course, uh-huh. when he's in the perfect image of God, was this prototype of Christ. So that those allusions from Philippians 2 probably fed the imagination of early Christians. So ironically, the story probably begins as a Christian one, uh-huh. but is then taken into the Quran without its Christological content. Yeah. You do a lot of work, uh, maybe some of our listeners don't know this, but you do a lot of work yourself between the Bible and the Quran. Um, you've published a couple of books bringing them together, commentary right. on the Bible and the Quran. What sort of readings are you doing when you're 
reading both texts? Sort of my my line of argument vis-a-vis the Quran is that it's a it's a it's a um, profoundly ritually um, biblical book. It's a book in the biblical tradition. It doesn't mean it it does not contribute anything um, original in its theology. It's it has its own distinct theological arguments, um, but the 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 um, the subtext the the world the the scriptural world in which it's drawing its um, stories anecdotes images motifs is the biblical world mm-hmm. and that sort of makes sense mm-hmm. yeah, we could, I don't want to go too far into this but the historical context I mean Islam emerges in the early seventh century A D um, in um, in, in the Middle East, you know, the traditional location is Mecca and Medina, the western part of Saudi Arabia. But, but Christianity and Judaism are everywhere, you know, from Egypt and Ethiopia to the Middle East, even to the east in Iraq and Iran. There's lots of Christianity there. So uh, it's no surprise to find the Quran deeply engaging with these things. And that, that sort of goes countercurrent in the world of Quranic studies, where the emphasis has been on the distinctiveness of the Quran, and especially the idea that the Quran emerged out of a pagan environment, because hmm. the city of the Prophet Muhammad um, itself is traditionally seen as a pagan city. So all of the material that came from that city, the so-called Meccan material, the city of Mecca, is generally seen at reflecting a pagan subtext or background. So, so I, my, um, my sort of um, reputation is to argue against that and to, to look for a biblical subtext. How is that received among your Muslim colleagues? It's complicated because um, f- it does destabilize the, um, the traditional narrative which accompanies the interpretation of the Quran, mm-hmm. right? So it sort of undermines the story around the Quran. But of course, it doesn't compromise the Quran itself. It doesn't mean that the Quran um, cannot be authoritative or for Muslims cannot be revelatory. Um, so so there, there are many Muslim colleagues who um, have similar interests and, um, you know, colleagues such as Emran al-Bedawi, um, who is at the University of Chicago and at the University of Houston, who does a similar line of research. Um, so it's a mixed story. Absolutely. Well, We've talked a little bit about the upcoming conference. Where can people find more information about this conference? Right. So um, if you go to um, the theology department of the University of Notre Dame, you go to theology.edu slash saintliness, you'll pull up the URL on the website. Um, an easy way is um, to follow me also on Twitter. Just look me up, Gabriel Reynolds. You'll find me on, on Twitter, and I'll continue to give updates there as well. Very good. We also talked about your new podcast, Minding Scripture. You can find that online at, guess what, mindingscripture.com. Perfect. Great. You claimed it. Nobody else had it. <laughs> mindingscripture.com. Please also be sure to check out some of Professor Reynolds' books, which include The Emergence of Islam, The Quran and the Bible, Text and Commentary, and his new book, Allah, God in the Quran. That's it. That's it. Yes. Well, Gabriel Reynolds, thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank and you. Thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage? or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. 
Don't be embarrassed, it's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?